welcome to the Pet Grooming Business Podcast with me, Bill Betts, where we give practical business advice to help you grow your pet grooming business. So without further ado, let's get going. Welcome to Megan Saints of Your HR Handle. Um, well, I was just chatting to Megan. I think we probably had a, had a chat like this this time last year, I think. It's been quite some time, hasn't it? How are you doing? Yeah. I'm good, thank you. Hello to everybody that's watching. Um, hi, Bill. <laughs> so yeah. um, as it's been a year, maybe uh, you hang out in the group. You're a group expert around um, human resources and you're actually our um, human resources advisor for our business. But maybe you can just introduce yourself um, to people who've not come across you, met you or heard of you uh, in the in the Facebook group. Yeah, so as Bill said, I'm Megan. Um, I'm a HR consultant, um, the owner of Your HR Handled. I have spoken to quite a few of you in the group. So if anybody is watching that I've sort of spoken to or done work for, then hello again. Um, but yeah, I suppose just sort of help with any sort of employee problems that people have, developing employees, helping to sort of get people um to become employers and helping them through their first employee, which is always a stressful time. Yeah, people get quite um, put off by being an employer due to the fear, don't they? So, Yeah, and it's never as bad as you anticipate it to be. Well, I shouldn't say never. It's usually not as bad as you anticipate it to be. <laughs> so how long have you been in the industry? How long have you been doing and helping businesses with their HR? I've been helping businesses with HR for sort of around probably eight, nine years. Um, set up my own business about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's just sort of grown from there. That's right. And um, so since we did our live um, last year, this is kind of a kind of a catch up live to see what's been going on and, and talk about the kind of uh, issues and questions and the help that you've been giving uh, pet groomers over the last year what's been um what's the one thing that really sticks out at the moment that you've been sort of helping dog groomers with to be honest I would say it's probably finding the right people so obviously the last year has been absolutely crazy in terms I know the industry is absolutely booming everyone's really busy um, and that's sort of coinciding with the time when there are more jobs than there are people. Um, and that doesn't even sort of take into account whether they're the right people or not. So I think the main challenge has been finding the right people so or finding out. people generally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've been helping out with recruitment. How, how do you help them with recruitment then? So in terms of recruitment, I tend to sort of, I mean, I am happy to support with like job adverts and stuff like that. Um, even with interviews, I know I've helped you with some interviews in the past, Bill. Um, but it does tend to be more sort of advising people where to put their adverts, advising people what to put in the adverts. Obviously, that job advert is the first thing that candidates are going to see. So you have to make sure you really nail that because you want it to attract people and you want it to attract the right people as well. And are there any um, big do's and don'ts that you've seen or big don'ts that you've seen um, in regards to um, advertising for positions? Yeah, I've seen a lot of don'ts, actually. <laughs> Not necessarily from this group, but just generally in my time in HR. Um, the main thing you need to avoid is anything that could be linked to discrimination. I mean, recruitment is one of the biggest sort of processes in HR that's likely to discriminate against somebody. 
Um, so for anybody that's looking to recruit, the first thing I'll always say is make sure you're familiar with the protected characteristics in the Equality Act because um, they're the things that you need to avoid discriminating against because that's what legally you can claim discrimination on. How many of those are there? <laughs> I feel like you can put me on the spot and ask me to list them. There's nine. Oh, seven, nine, you say? <laughs> yeah. Nine. Okay. Well, maybe we can put that in the uh, in the chat later. But so yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll drop it in the comments. <laughs> go and look up the protective characteristics so that you can avoid these these comments. Well, some of the biggest things that are like um, age, isn't it? That was the one. The yeah, first. I mean, I, I probably could list them all to be honest, but yeah, it's sort of like age, race, gender, sexual orientation. I think sort of the common ones that crop up in recruitment are age. So. And when I'm talking about discrimination, a lot of the time it's indirect discrimination, which means it's not necessarily directly saying you have to be 30 years or above to apply for this role. It might be something like you need 10 years experience in the industry. And actually what you're doing there, you're indirectly discriminating against somebody that might be sort of 23. You've got five years experience, all the qualifications, perfectly well qualified to do the job but they haven't physically had the opportunity to have 10 years experience because they only left school five, six years ago. So that's indirectly discriminating against their age. Wow. That's a bit of, that's a golden nugget of information that is. Cause I, that's yeah. I'm looking at it, I wouldn't have thought about that actually. Everyone just yeah. putting the age on the age brackets and stuff. It's a really common one. I think when you're talking about experience on a job advert, you need to make sure that you can justify why they need that length of experience. Because I have seen before people put like 10 years experience for say a driving role or something. And really, if you've been driving in a driving role for say two years, you're probably quite experienced because you've been driving every day for the last two years. So it's just not really necessary. Okay, so um, do you take that completely out or does it need, just need rephrasing sort of thing? Just rephrasing. I mean, some jobs you will need a certain amount of time or you will want a certain amount of time for someone to have been qualified, but it just needs to be a reasonable amount of time. And that's that special HR word, reasonable, which is really sort of subjective and not not the most helpful. Um, it's a get out, <laughs> which we use a lot. We used a lot in the police is, you know, get yeah. out everything reasonable and justifiable and proportionate and necessary and stuff like yeah. that. And I mean, what I find reasonable, you might not. But as long as you can justify why you think it's reasonable, then you should be okay. Yeah, well, it's funny how those sort of words pop up in all the different industries and buzzwords. Yeah. So obviously, um, age discrimination is the one we've been talking about. And, uh, you know, there's been a big push for apprentices in this group over the last year. You know, I'm a real great believer that an apprentice can really help you um, get into the employment market. Um, get yourself help within your business and start to help you to scale your business. And you've obviously supported quite a few um, pet groomers with sorting this out and getting them onto the employment ladder. Um, yeah. But when we think apprentices, we quite often think of young people, don't we? So it might be something else that we're tripping over um, when we're advertising for them. Yes, definitely. I mean, as a rule of thumb, never put an age on an advert, whether it's for an apprentice or or not. Um, but yeah, an apprentice can be any age. So you don't want to say a young, enthusiastic individual like you just don't want to say that. Um, and it's something that people would quite innocently put, not really thinking yeah. about it and not knowing the potential repercussions of putting it. Um, but yeah, just 
you just want to avoid anything relating to age, gender, any of those protected characteristics. So how about like putting something like you must be fit and healthy or um, you must, it's the, you know, dog grooming is a hard, hard work, bathing dogs all day for apprentices. We've, we've literally had apprentices or, or people coming in for trials that um, they go lightheaded because they've not had their breakfast in the morning and they're just not used to yeah. the physical exercise. So you're really tempted to put on like this is, you need to be fit and, and up, up for working sort of thing. Would that be like classed as uh, sort of a bit dodgy? Obviously, you have to be careful. The one that that might link to is disability. Um, the fact is, you have to be physically capable of doing the job. And you're okay to sort of sift out those that aren't in an interview or recruitment process. Obviously, if there is somebody that has a disability, you could look at reasonable adjustments. But if somebody is not capable of doing that job, then they're not. And that's fine. I think what I always advise is don't put it on an advert and wait until you get to interview to sort of maybe discuss it a little bit more then and find out if it is something that you think they might be able to do or you might not. But another thing I would say is don't make the decision for the person. Tell them what's involved in the job. Tell them it's physical work. There's lots of manual handling, lifting, bending. Ask them if they're capable of it, but don't tell them that they're not. Right. So sort of leave it in their court sort of thing yeah yeah and um so we we go through the interview process you know and um that's quite daunting for us and for the candidates so do you help people go through the interview process themselves yeah definitely so getting the questions right is an important one so another sort of key tip that I'd give is always base your questions on your job advert because you've should have um, put that job advert together sort of listing exactly what it is you want and these people have applied because they think they fit that criteria. So you now want to test that they do fit that criteria. So if, for example, you've put they need to have good attention to detail, um, then in the interview, link the question to that and say, can you give an example of when you've paid good attention to detail? Um, so, yeah, I support with sort of writing the interview questions and tailoring them to exactly what it is that the client's after mm -hmm. from their employee. Um, and then also just sitting in interviews, because it's always best practice to have two people at an interview, um, one to sort of talk and one to take notes and record what was written. And it's just nice after an interview to be able to discuss it with someone and sort of bounce ideas off each other and see what you thought. Oh, good cop, bad cop kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I always end up being the bad cop, though. <laughs> so it's always you, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so we always talk about hiring on your values, don't we? So like... Um, skills can be taught but values are quite ingrained yeah can you kind of explain that a little bit and sort of expand on that a bit yeah so I mean ideally as a company you'd have a set of values that you'd publish you'd put them on your website and you'd be sort of acting um, in line with those values and so would your employees and you'd be sort of like encouraging those values in your employees and that helps to create the culture that you want for your business um, so if you're recruiting somebody new and you obviously want them to fit culturally so the best way to do that is to look at sort of values that are important to you and see if you can see those in that individual and a question I love to put at the end of an interview is sort of these are our company values which one do you relate the most to and why so then you sort of giving them all and you're asking them to tell you which one they're most like and then why they are so they'll sort of talk about how they fit that value and it gets them 
talking so that you can sort of understand if you think they do fit that bar, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, we've done the, the sort of the job advert, we've done the, I'm just thinking through the process, we've done the initial interview via Zoom. That's okay these days, isn't it? We can do interviews by Zoom or in person. Yeah. Um, record it on Zoom if you're doing it on, on Zoom. So if you're going to record it, I would definitely seek permission and make sure that the individual knows that they're being recorded. You'd probably want to get sort of consent in writing. I get everything in writing. So um, (laughs) just so that you can sort of, if anything ever comes back from it, you can say, well, you agreed that it was okay at the time. But also you need to let them know what you're going to do with that recording, how long you're going to keep it for, where it's going to be stored, why you're keeping it. So to be honest, it's probably more hassle than it's worth. Mm-hmm. You probably better to get a pen and paper and jot down some notes. Um, but that being said, I'm not saying that you should never do it, but you would definitely need to get consent. And that um, saying about everything in writing, that nudges me actually, because I've had this conversation with you before about um, <laughs> as a HR consultant to our business, what's disclosable and what's not. So it's like any messages that we send between each other are kind of questioned, are these messages on WhatsApp or, or Facebook, are these disclosable? Should there be a tribunal? And I was quite shocked at the the uh, answer. Yeah, so they are. The thing is, an employee has access. This is through sort of like data protection and GDPR and stuff. They have the right to request access to anything that has their name on it or anything that's about them. Um, so a sort of sneaky way around, which I wouldn't advise, but if you really do have to talk about an employee and you're worried that, the message might be used to sort of for something else i'd always try and do it over the phone or in person but if you really need to put something on an email try not to use the name because in theory if it doesn't have their name on it and they don't know this conversation has happened then who's going to really know um but yeah the key thing to take away is that employees can access request access to anything that has their name on it and you're legally obliged to give it to them as well that's quite scary. And there's probably quite a few people going, <gasps> oh my God. Going through their inbox, deleting everything. <laughs> or their WhatsApp chats, you know, it's secure. Yeah. Have, you, has, have you had this happen to you? Like, have you had a, been involved in a case where they've requested access to all messages and stuff like that? I have, but I've not had it where there's been an issue from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have read a lot of case law where things have happened in a tribunal and sort of it's, swayed the decision of the tribunal because it's evident that there was ulterior motives rather than what the company has sort of put forward yeah yeah interesting that so that was just on a side note i just suddenly remembered that from when we sort of discussed things before and though so um so what i like to do in our business is we we do um the 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 interview either face-to-face or zoom the last last ones we did were over zoom um had you in the um on the Zoom call as well to give us some help and advice and to to make some notes and pick up any quiet moments where we're struggling. Um, yeah. But then we, you know, it's a practical job, so it's really nice to get that person in to do what we call a working interview. Is that a good phrase for it? Is that the right way to phrase it? Yeah. So I suppose yeah, a working interview, a work trial. But I think you have to be careful referring to it as a trial because it kind of insinuates a longer period of time where it's sort of like a working interview you can just show them around show them what they'll be doing maybe let them have a bit of a go at what they'd be doing see how they'd handle a dog or the equipment or something Mm -hmm. um 
but yeah, you just have to be careful in terms of whether they're paid for it and stuff. But if they are literally just trialing the work and not actually working, you wouldn't necessarily have to pay them. But it can be quite a grey area. So you might want to get them in on sort of like an hour or so and pay them for it. It's, it sounds like pay, actually just paying for, paying them for it is the kind of easiest route to go down. I'll take it, you, you just pay the minimum wage. If you had yeah. someone coming in like nine till one, to come into the into the business to have a look around speak to the other groomers perhaps get involved with a bit of dog washing a bit of drying maybe um see if they like sweep up put the washing on all that sort of you know all those mm-hmm. tasks that you want to see them doing that's probably like a half a day's work really isn't it yeah and really you want to be paying someone for the time especially if you think about like the actual cost of what that would be in terms of the wage that you'd pay them so say it's half a day it's going to be say 40 pound ish and compared to sort of breaching national minimum wage and getting a claim, it's going to be a lot less. So, <laughs> yeah. are there any other responsibilities? Obviously, we've got to, they're coming into our workplace. So we've got to be aware about health and safety and fire regulate, like, like telling them about fire alarms and stuff like that. Is there anything else that we need to be mindful of? Yeah. So, as an employer, ideally, you'll have sort of like an employee induction, which you'll give to anybody that joins the company, and that will go through sort of the facilities so where the toilets are where the fire exits are um risk assessments if there are sort of hazardous chemicals or anything around um and just all the health and safety things if someone's coming in on a work trial you want them to do that as well yeah cool don't put shampoo in your eyes and sort of stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, i wouldn't advise it <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like you know treat them as they're they're in for the day or half a day and just like make sure they're aware of everything that goes on you know it, it can be um a dangerous place with you know don't just go up to dogs and start stroking them before you know what they're like you know like you yeah. said shampoos and hot water and all sorts of stuff so go through all the health and safety with them so we've, another um, thing sorry to interrupt another thing get them to sign to say that you've been through all that with them as well I mean this is their first day so you don't know what they're going to be like and yeah if they burn their hand or something you want to have proof that you told them that the tap was hot hot water's hot (laughs) yeah Yeah, I understand so you know get get them to sign your health and safety book to say that they they read through it and acknowledged it and everything is that the same for I take it that's the same for work experience um work placements anything like that yeah it's sort of anybody coming on site that's going to be using the equipment and stuff yeah um okay so i'm, I'm kind of taking us on a journey here i thought that was probably quite a, a good way to sort of go through everything that you do so uh we really like this candidate um really happy um what obviously wages is very much well it's set by law how much you must pay them but do you give any advice around wages or how to start them on introductory pay or, you know, trial periods, three months, um, settling in period, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'd always advise to have a probationary period. And usually I advise that to be about 12 weeks, so three months, 12 weeks, however you want to put it. Um, And what you could do is sort of give them an initial rate and say that that will be reviewed at the 12-week period. And it may increase, but I'd be careful of making any promises of an increase just because you don't know how they're going to perform. Um, equally, if someone's coming to you really sort of experienced and you know that they're going to be like top groomer straight away, you might want to just put them on a higher um, rate straight away just because it will help with engagement retention, especially in the market at the minute. 
people are probably getting counter offered for sort of like 10p more an hour um and they might they might leave if they're not sort of really engaged and feel like mm. they're being appreciated for the work all right okay so um what's our legal if we want to take this worker on we've agreed a wage with them um holidays all written down in in you know we've got minimum statutory minimum minimum holiday that we have to offer we can offer more if we want to can't we but um yeah I always advise to stick with statutory for the start especially if it's a first employee um just because you're probably not likely gonna completely understand or know how much you're going to have to pay out in terms of sort of like tax and i contributions and then holiday pay on top it's quite a big change so if you keep it all sort of statutory and then you can look to increase it later if you want to cool could you just explain to us about um bank holidays included or bank holidays not included because it's something that i get a little bit confused about when yeah I mean, yeah, it can be very confusing. So essentially, the statutory minimum holiday requirement is 28 days, which is based on working five days a week. Obviously, if they work less than that, it gets prorated down, which in itself gets confusing. Um, but let's just assume that this is an employee working five days a week and they have 28 days holiday. You can either include the bank holidays in that 28 days or you can leave them out. So if you don't include them in the 28 days, then that means that they work bank holidays and they therefore just get paid their normal rate and they have the 28 days holiday to take whenever. Okay. So, well, within that holiday year. If you include the bank holidays in the holiday entitlement, then they don't work on the bank holidays and they get paid for it. But those days, so I think it's eight bank holidays, isn't it? They get taken from the holiday entitlement. So they'd only have 20 days to choose where they want to take it through the year. Yeah. So so if you don't include bank holidays in your holiday agreement, um, but you're closed, or do you have to remain open? But Or you're closed and they don't yeah. work, work it, they don't get paid. Yeah. So this is a problem that sometimes crops up. If it's a bank holiday and you're closing, but they're willing to work, like they would ordinarily work, then you have to pay them. So if you don't include bank holidays in your holiday entitlement, then you have to pay them and you can't force them to take a holiday. You can ask them to put it in as a holiday, but you can't force them to unless you can give them twice as much notice as the length of the holiday. And this gets so confusing. It's really difficult to explain. But if it's one day as a bank holiday, you would have to give them two days notice. And in that case, you can actually force them to take the holiday. So the easiest way to do it is to include bank holidays in your contract. I would do, unless you stay <laughs> open on bank holidays. Uh, someone just said, is this for apprentices too? And she's, yes, I believe. Yeah, yeah, apprentices are classed as employees. Yeah. So what I like about holidays is, and maybe maybe everyone knows this, but they might not, is that you can actually, as an employer, this is like the last bit of control you have as an employer, <laughs> you can actually dictate when your employee takes their holidays. Yeah. Every I think single this is day. the best thing that I've ever told you, isn't it? You yeah. always bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, so you could literally, so they have those 28 days, if they work five days a week, 
you could literally plot out all 28 of those days and say this is when you take them um the problem with that is people obviously might want to go on holiday they might have a wedding to go to it's not a good approach to take but if there are holidays sort of dates that you need off and you need to close the business and you know when they're going to be and a common example is the period between christmas and new year a lot of people sort of close and not all of those days are bank holidays um you can sort of say the 28th and the 29th of December, a company shut down. So you have to take a holiday for that date. Yeah. So the, the, the shutdown period. Um, obviously, you, you, you wouldn't be very popular if you told them exactly what every day that they, you know, give them, give them a bit of holiday left to choose. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think something that comes up quite a lot with people that I speak to from the group, actually, is maybe um, one of the business owners is just taking on an employee on it might be an apprentice and they don't trust them or they can't really leave them on their own so they might say i'm taking my holidays on these weeks and these weeks can you sort of plot your holidays in those weeks as well because we're going to be closed and it would help to have a bit of flexibility and maybe agree the dates together or have sort of like a week of holidays where you can be flexible and she can have them and you can take those dates that I said she it could be a he that the apprentice has um <laughs> sort of chosen to take off as well. Do you know what I mean? So you can sort of be a little bit flexible with it as well. Yeah. Someone's just made a, a good point actually. Um so this year is a bit special, isn't it? Because we've got some extra bank holidays. So what happens with the Jubilee bank holidays? Do we need to add extra holiday on, or it's kind of like it or lump it, really, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean it would be dependent on the wording in the contract. But most contracts, I mean, if I've written a contract, it will say, um, if it includes bank holidays, it will say 28 days, including bank holidays. So in that case, whether there's eight bank holidays in the year or 10 bank holidays in the year, that just includes bank holidays. So the Jubilee holiday wouldn't count. If you had sort of stated 20 days holiday plus eight bank holidays, you might want to review your contract a little bit. Okay. So... um... Just staying on holidays, carrying over um, holiday, what's the the rules? Are there any rules or is this down to employers' discretion? So um, what I mean is if you have an employee that has um, 20 days holiday and they only use 15, so they've got five left at the end of the year, um, do we need to let them carry that over or, or what? So I think if we take it back to like the actual purpose of a holiday, Um, and these 28 days holiday that we have to have it's because it sort of allows sufficient rest periods so this is all due to the working time directive which is set out in law Um, so you should not allow employees to carry holidays over unless you offer above the minimum so if you offer 35 days you could in theory allow them to carry seven days over and they've still had that statutory minimum amount however I always encourage employers to encourage their employees to take their holidays within the year. And I know there was a bit sort of around COVID, there was a discrepancy there. And I know we sort of allowed some of your employees to carry holiday over, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Um, there was an amendment to the working time directive for two years to allow that to happen. And that was mostly because people had been furloughed, so they couldn't take their holiday. Um, but sort of from this year going forwards, you shouldn't really allow employees to carry holiday over. You could be in breach of the working time directive. Okay. So this comes down to us as employers. 
looking at outstanding holiday, coming into quiet periods, maybe February, October time, and sort of saying, look, you need to go and take a few days off to, to keep up with your your holiday yeah definitely and again it's about having it written into the contract as well so put the onus on the employee and say it's your responsibility to take all of your holidays if you don't take them you'll lose them um so an employer is not going to get in trouble if an employee doesn't take them unless there wasn't sort of sufficient time for them to take the holidays okay and um just going back to that i was thinking back to my my um time in the police we obviously um, under strict contracts and we could only allow, they would only allow a certain number of us off at any one time. Is that down to uh, the individual employer? You know, uh, we, we have a rule that only one person is allowed to take holiday at any one time. That's all okay to sort of set those rules and, and stipulations. Yeah, definitely. So it's it's dependent on sort of the business needs, really. The business needs should always come first and holidays approved around that. So you might want to sort of add in there, one person can be off at a time. Um, if it's sort of an extenuating circumstance, it's up to manager's discretion and we might approve it. If you never know, two people might have to go to a wedding or something on the same day. So you don't want to complete. Yeah, they might be getting married. Yeah, so again, it's worth having that little bit of flexibility in it, but as a rule, yeah, it's good to have something like that in place because you don't want to have everyone requesting the same holiday. And what what um, keeps coming up in everything you say is that what's in your contract? What's in your contract? And, um, you know, this is why we, we reached out to you as a business because um, we were going through some um, times with employees and we were seeking help and we'd go to different companies and they'd just say well what's your handbook say what's your contract say and you're like ah, I don't know how to interpret what my contract says I don't even know if my contract's correct um what uh so legally we have to offer a contract to an employee don't we yeah, so from 2020, it became a legal obligation to give a contract from day one of employment. Before that, you actually had eight weeks after the employee started to give them a contract, which is a bit crazy. Um, but yeah, legally now they have to have it on or before their first day of employment. So this contract needs to be in place before they step in foot, step foot in the door on day one? Yeah, and ideally you want to give it to them sort of at least a few days before so they can have a read through it and make sure that they're happy with it um, because you don't want someone sort of working for two days and then decide that there's something in the contract that they don't like and then leave it. And so mm. it's easier if they've read it and they know exactly what's expected and what sort of their terms are before they actually start working for you. Right, okay. So um a lot of people will go will now turn to the internet and uh, Google <laughs> employment contract. What's uh, what are the pitfalls? Are there any pros to that? And what are the pitfalls to just grabbing a contract off off the internet or grabbing a contract off um, your mate that's sitting in this group and say, oh, you can borrow or you can use the wording on on our contract sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the key things is, like you just said, you didn't really sort of have much faith in your contract and you didn't actually know how to interpret it. So. Um, it, it's not helpful to have a contract like that because if it is ever challenging you don't actually know what it means you're not going to be able to explain it to your employee so probably they're going to have to seek external support for someone to explain it to them and then you don't know that it's actually protecting 
either their rights or your rights. So these templates, I mean, it's better than having nothing, but a lot of the time employees will use a template and not actually understand what it means. Mm. Um, and in that case, they're actually at risk of breaching their own contract because they don't know what it says. Mm. Um, and it's not tailored to their business. So if you sort of get it written up by somebody that has spoken to you about your business and they understand the business and the industry, then they sort of know what to look out for and what you need to put in there um, and how to sort of word things. So it's definitely better to get one tailored to your business. That's what I was going to say. Is every con- can, is there such a thing as a generic contract or it sounds like it needs to be tailored down to your specific needs as a business because everything everyone's different. Everyone works differently, don't they? Yeah, I've been asked a few times, will I sort of provide a um, template contract? And I don't feel comfortable doing it because somebody could use that thinking, oh, it's been written by a HR professional, it's fine. But actually, it might not be fine for their business. It will be legally okay, but it might not be tailored to their business. And if somebody doesn't actually understand one of the clauses in there, and then they end up breaching their own contracts, they're at risk of being taken to tribunal. Um and it's all actually quite innocent because they just didn't even realise what was in there. Yeah, trust me, everyone. Me and Megan have had this conversation trying to get a generic <laughs> contract for the group, but it's a no. <laughs> you know, I, I have tried it. I've tried to get a generic contract, but it just doesn't make sense, does it? No. It doesn't make sense. So hand in hand with um, the contract um, is that blasted handbook. Tell us about um, a staff handbook, which I spent many, many days off trying to write, and I never actually got it published. Um, I sent it to you in the end to sort of uh, rip apart and then do a new one. So why, why do we, why do we, you know, why do we need a handbook? And um, so I just saw a comment saying, can your accountant do your, do your employment contract? Oh, do you know what? This really frustrates me, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> accountants are absolutely great, but I can't do my own accounts. I wouldn't try and do someone else's accounts. And I kind of feel like that's what accountants should do as well. I just don't think that they're necessarily trained in employment law to be able to write an employment contract. Um, and I've had quite a few clients come to me with a contract and they say, oh, my accountant's written it or their accountant will challenge something in the contract um, and it's just not right. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be like multitasking. So I've taken my accounts to uh, to Megan, the HR specialist, <laughs> taken my HR uh, policy to uh, Adam, the website designer, and my accountant Gordon's going to be designing my website. You know, these are specialist subjects, aren't they? They're, they're, yeah, they're and I mean, if you're gonna, yeah, if you're gonna outsource it, then outsource it to the right industry because I, I assume you'd pay your accountant for it, so you might as well sort of pay an actual employment law specialist to write it. Yeah, it's interesting. It just popped up, so I thought I'd uh, I'd ask you that one as the steam like comes out of your ears. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so what were we saying? Oh, the the, the handbook, you know. <sighs> Do we we need do we need handbooks and you know do you need a handbook with one employee? I know what the answer is, but go on. So legally, you don't need a handbook, but I, honestly, I would always advise to have one, no matter how many employees you have. Um, a lot of people sort of say, "What actually is a handbook?" And I always refer to it as sort of like an instruction manual for employing people. It literally tells you how to be an employer step by step. Sort of any issue that comes up with an employee. If they ask you any question, a lot of the time, like um, you sort of experienced before, you wouldn't actually know the answer. 
But if you have a handbook, you can literally go straight to it and just find it. Um, and the employee also has access to it. So a lot of the time, they actually don't even need to come to you with the question. They can look in the handbook and find the answer for themselves. Um, it, sets yeah. out, it sets out your business rules, doesn't it? What you expect from your employees. It, it can even set out your values at the beginning, can't it? So that people know exactly yeah. where you're coming from, how you want to operate your business. And then um, take us through uh, a few of the common policies that you'd put in a dog groomer's handbook. Because I know, again, these handbooks are very specific to the business or to the industry. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, some industries you'd have to have like quite a focus on IT security and things like that. In the dog grooming industry, probably not as much. You want to be focusing more on uh, a common one that I get asked to sort of write up is a mobile phone policy. So having mobile phones in the salon. Um which, I mean, some employers allow, some don't. Um, and it, it doesn't really matter which way you go, but you need to have your rules set out so that if you are, for example, the employer that doesn't want people to have phones on the shop floor, then you have the policy written out in the handbook. Your employees signed to say they've received and read the handbook. Um, so then if they're not doing it, and they are bringing their phone onto the sort of into the salon, then you can say, you know you shouldn't be doing this and then progress it to sort of disciplinary action. Obviously, you might not do that straight away, but if it continues to happen, um, then you have that option. Whereas if you didn't have the handbook, it would be a lot more difficult to carry out that process because you wouldn't be able to, they could say, well, I didn't know I wasn't allowed it. Yeah, and we're, you know, we're talking, um, and we've had this in our, in our um, workplace, and I know others that have it in theirs at the moment. We're talking about people like employees, um, with a dog on the table, a dryer in one hand and Facebook or conversations going on in the other, you know, this is not professional, is it? It's, it's distracting. You're supposed to be caring for the dog. You're supposed to be like watching what's going on, looking out for the dog's welfare, doing your job. Phones are a massive distraction nowadays. You have to sometimes physically prize them out of people's hands, don't you? But Yeah, and I mean, you want to walk into Tesco and see someone on the till on their phone. But it seems to be quite common in this industry that people sort of think that it's acceptable to have their phone. And I mean, it's up to the employer to decide if it is or not and how much of a distraction it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a common policy that I get asked to write up. But I mean, there are a lot of other policies such as an absence policy always an important one you can set out in there exactly what is classed as unacceptable absence which allows you to take action I've had sort of clients come to me before and say oh this person's absence is unacceptable and like well have they hit your absence triggers or have they got a high Bradford factor score and they're like well they don't have any it's like well how can you justify what unacceptable is because your employee might not think that's unacceptable but if you told them at the start of their employment that it is then they know it is so it becomes a lot easier to sort of go down that process as well. One of them, you say, what's in your handbook? And you're like, I haven't got a bloody handbook. <laughs> <laughs> but things like yeah. things that um, things that we wanted to concentrate on when we had ours done uh, at the time was the mobile phones, uh, smoking breaks. And like we had a bit of conflict between employees that smoked and that didn't smoke. And it's like, what's fair? What's reasonable? And it's yeah. just like, oh, it's just sort of blows your mind a little bit because you're trying to you know we're all adults we try and um treat everyone as adults and give and take etc but you know it's putting those rules and expectations down in writing isn't it and um yeah and, get- and I think if people yeah if people have those rules in place from the start 
then it's not such a shock when you start really enforcing them. But if they've never sort of had these rules written down and then all of a sudden you decide you want to start using them, then it becomes a little bit different to change people's behaviours when they've been used to doing things a certain way. So that's why I think it's important, even if you have one employee, to have that handbook in place from the start of their employment. Yeah. And if you already employ a a team of um, staff and you've never had a handbook in place, how would you go about introducing one into your workplace? So I'm actually going through that process with a few people in the group at the moment. Um, And it can be a challenge if you've got some sort of long serving employees there that have not had it before. They're going to be quite meticulous in reading it and sort of seeing what they might not like about it and they may challenge it but I think you just have to make sure you're explaining why you're introducing it um explaining sort of the business reason behind it and then taking on board feedback it might be that they have some feedback that you actually want to take on board and change something and that's fine to do as well um but I think the important thing when introducing a new handbook is to sort of have a bit of a meeting with your employees and say look we're introducing this these are sort of like the key policies the key changes and making sure that they because I mean your handbook is probably like 40 50 pages long isn't it so the chances are they're not going to read it page to page so you want to really point out the key policies that are in there and what they state um and then yeah just sort of introduce it that way and go on Try and introduce it as like a positive thing that's going to benefit them as well, because it does. It benefits everybody. Yeah, it does benefit people because they know where they stand and they know yeah. raise an issue if there is one or what is an issue and what's not. So and we, yeah. we obviously we you came in and um, we did all of our contracts and did our handbooks. We introduced it um, after sort of 14 years of employing people. So it is possible. Um, yeah introduce it into your business how um how do you keep it up to date i mean do handbooks need keeping up to date do things change to be honest they tend to stay quite relevant for a long period of time um every so often the sort of statutory things such as maternity entitlements or ssp might change um but the way to get around it is to not sort of put specific figures in there and just refer to it as statutory maternity pay or statutory sick pay but there may be times where it needs updating um and it's worth maybe just reviewing it every april so i'll always look at the employment changes that are coming in every april and october because that's when they tend to be introduced um so if something were to come up that needed changing obviously with you being one of my clients i'd get in touch and say we need to change this and it's really easy to update a handbook you literally just change the bit you want to change and then reissue it um and ask the employees yeah ask the employees to sign it again (laughs) (laughs) so um so we're in in, we're in that we've got a few questions to come into as well in a bit but so we're now in our process we've hired we've we've issued our our personal contract from day one we've got our handbook sorted um they're working happily um the accountant's got all the paye details they're doing our pay slips and everything um so when should we be reviewing our employees and how should we be doing it and things like that? So we mentioned earlier probation period. So as I said, always sort of like recommend about three month probationary period because that allows you to really assess what progress they've made and any sort of areas you might need to improve on. So at that three month mark, have a sit down with them, 
sort of assess how they're doing it's good to have some agreed criteria before and maybe issue that to the employee so that you can get their feedback on how they feel they they're doing as well um obviously as we've found before bill people tend to really mark themselves down and be a bit hard on themselves don't they yeah. um so it's then about sort of agreeing between you know, the, the middle ground and sort of saying no don't be so hard on yourself you're doing this well but then also pointing out where they can improve um again keeping a record of it asking the employee to sign to say they agree and that was the discussion that was had um and then if there are no sort of issues then i'd say either six monthly or annual performance appraisals depending how sort of thorough you want to be with it um i know sometimes you might set a six monthly one and you don't end up doing it for another year just because things get busy um yeah. but i'd say you don't really want to go past that year mark without having a performance review because it's good to give your employees feedback even if they're like great employees doing really well it's good to let them know that they're great employees doing well it'll do a lot for their engagement and then you can sort of see if there are any development needs or if they want to do some more training any more courses to develop their own skills um and things like that which will help to really engage and retain people which is important at the moment yeah, and we've we've reached out to you as well before. Um, you've sat in on these meetings with us, um, taken note of what's going on, and you've also helped us to suggest further training. So, um, so you've suggested like customer management courses that um, they could do online, or um, you've also helped us where we wanted to send an employee um, through a through a course, and uh, we've rejigged the contract and the agreement, and sort of. Uh, and ask them to be liable for some of the costs of the course, should they mm -hmm. need stuff like that. So again, it's all helpful stuff, isn't it? Protecting yeah, us. definitely. Yeah, I think if you're going to put somebody through a course, if it's sort of a significant amount of money, which a lot of them tend to be, it's worth having a training agreement in place. Um, even if you want to pay for the whole thing, just sort of saying if they leave within a certain amount of time, they'll pay back this amount. Um, and then what, if they do decide to leave, you can obviously decide if you're going to try and claw it back or not. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then something that everyone struggles with is managing poor performance. Uh, what are the sort of um, strategies and tips that you give to manage poor performance with employees? Yeah, so this is something quite important because a lot of the people that I speak to from this group I've found tend to ignore poor performance until it gets to be a real issue. Um, and the problem is if you ignore poor performance for so long, it becomes harder to justify that it's poor performance because you've sort of accepted it for it's normal how long. Yeah. yeah, and if the employee doesn't know that they've been underperforming, then it's not really fair to all of a sudden try and take action and it'll come as a massive shock to them and they'll probably feel a bit more aggrieved than if you'd actually sat down right at the start and said you need to improve on this. So sort of tips for dealing with that is don't be scared to have a difficult conversation. Um, obviously, nobody likes to have these conversations, but you'll feel quite empowered after it. Um, and they're never as bad as you think they're going to be. Um, so just try to sort of nip it in the bud so you can raise it informally first um, and sort of explain what the issues are and what improvement you want to see. Um, if you don't really see an improvement, you might want to start taking it a little bit more formal and documenting the discussions that you have, setting out sort of improvement plans and timeframes where you want to see them improve by. Um, and hopefully that will be enough to sort of get their performance up to standard. Um, if it's not, you can obviously carry on through a sort of disciplinary um, 
and sort of manage them out of the business in terms of capability. Um, but you'll be surprised how many times it doesn't actually lead to that. And these sort of improvement plans will actually help people to improve. Mm. Have you got any sort of the top three poor performance issues that you deal with? Uh, well, I think probably attendance is one mm-hmm. um, or timekeeping. I suppose you can sort of link the two together. Um, yeah, some people really struggle with sort of being on time. Um, and I know we've had this discussion as well before. You can sort of try to put things in place to help with that. So find out why they're late and could you give them a 10 minute later start time and ask them to stay later at the end of the day and try and work with them that way. Um, but a lot of the time it's finding out what the underlying cause is for that poor performance. Um, but I suppose another sort of reason that someone might not perform is they have bad quality um so they're not grooming to the standard that you expect them to and quite a few people in the industry have told me like you've either got it or you haven't um some people just can't do it i don't think i'm very good at it because i'm not very good at like using my hands for stuff (laughs) um but yeah so if you really don't think that somebody's ever going to be up to the standard that you need from them you might want to sort of take that route um, but again, it's better to tell them at the start, give them the time to improve. And then if they don't improve, unfortunately, you might have to take it a bit further. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So, you know, <clears throat> reach out to people like yourselves. If if you're an employee or an employer, sorry, and you're struggling with dealing with issues like that to, get, to grab some advice and some help and support, really, isn't it? Yeah. And this is where the good cop, bad cop thing can come in as well. So I can sit in these meetings with people, um, with employers, and I can sort of do a lot of the talking for them. So if if you don't feel confident enough to have that difficult conversation, then you can always get somebody to come in and support you. Um, but you just have to make sure that you are sort of back in that decision as well so there has been times where people have sort of probably more when I worked in companies but people have sort of blamed HR managers of like not wanting to make a decision be like oh it was all HR but actually they'd asked you to do it yeah. um which is fine all person yeah <laughs> and um I, and I think you know like everything if you've got if you have a bad day with an employee who's poor performed or done something notes isn't it keep notes write up notes of what you've conversations and and stuff yeah and ideally sharing the notes with the employee and asking them to sign to agree to say that they've read and understood especially if you are sort of putting an improvement plan in place um yeah just asking them to sign to say they know where they're they've been told that they're underperforming and they know what they've got to do to make it better then if they haven't done it they can't say oh i didn't know i needed to do that Nice. So this in particular um, fictitious employee that we've we've hired, <laughs> we've, gone through, we've gone through the process. You know, they've made manager, they've done thirty years, and they've now retired with a gold watch and uh, a nice. <laughs> so you know, with your help, they've 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 done really well in our business. This is, could probably be another episode, um, but let's see if we can touch a little bit on the self-employed um, part of the industry because. The industry in itself, you know, um, there is a lot of self-employed people. Um, there's a lot of self-employed people that are actually employed and they don't necessarily know their employment rights. And there's also a lot of um, business owners that take on self-employed people, which you will see in the groups um, classed as table renters, I suppose, or renters mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Let's just go over the, the sort of what is it, who is a self and what's deemed as being self-employed to start with, just to clear that up. 
Yeah, so self-employed, I suppose you might refer to them as a freelancer or a contractor or a subcontractor, but it's essentially somebody that works for themselves. So they'll pay their own tax, they'll pay their own national insurance, they'll have complete control over how they work, they'll have complete control over their hours. Um, so you can't sort of say to it, if somebody's truly self-employed, you wouldn't say you work nine till five, Monday to Friday, that's not how it works. So sort of be able to choose their own hours and if they do agree to hours and they don't work then there's not a lot you can do about it there's no obligation for them to work but equally there's no obligation for you to offer them work but I think probably one of the key things to think about if you're unsure if your self-employed person is self-employed is whether they have the right to turn down work or whether they are expected to be here every day, nine till five. That's probably like one of the key indicators. So if I was um, a self-employed worker, um, I've got a, a spare table in our salon and um, I come in at uh, 10 o'clock because that's when my first my first dog is booked in. And I do that dog and then I go, right, see you later. And the, and the salon owner goes, well, I've got other dogs for you to do. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't leave you know why are you leaving you're you're supposed to be here till five that yeah that is essentially they're not they're not being they're not truly self-employed are they no definitely not that's more sort of how you would treat an employee obviously you're paying an employee by the hour you're paying them to be there like their time to be there so you can say no you have to stay till five but this person you're probably paying them for the job the specific job that they've done and you can't dictate that they have to stay till five o'clock because then there is sort of that obligation of them to be there yeah or well, i'm just paying the salon owner 50 quid to to have a table so i'll come and go as when i choose to you know yeah I'll bother turning up but i'll still give you 50 quid for the day sort of thing that's yeah exactly and you just sort of touched on another one as well um i can't remember what you said <laughs> paying for a table renting a table and yeah so often people come to me and say that they've got somebody that's self-employed um and they are paying an hourly rate and i mean it's not that you can't do that but usually with a self-employed person they would sort of um give you a price per job or they'd rent the table off you or they'd invoice you for certain work that they've done but it should be that person that's dictating how much you pay and invoicing you for that money rather than you saying I'll pay you five pound or well not five pound I'll pay you twelve pound an hour yeah and what's the difference between uh, like a freelancer then so um uh, one of our groomers has gone on maternity leave we're a bit stuck so we need someone to come in and help us um sort of replace her so we, we need someone sort of Monday to Friday nine to five can I do that on a on a freelance contract or is that again sounds employed doesn't it yeah I mean you could you could do it you could have somebody and say we have work available here but they're not obliged to take it so it's probably not your best option to take what you might be better to do is get a casual worker which is sort of what people would more commonly know as a zero hour contract worker um but there is a slight difference but uh casual worker you're not obliged to give them hours but if they've agreed to do hours then they have to do them because they're a worker so they're sort of in the middle of being self-employed and employed so that might have sort of muddied the waters a little bit in terms of what we're trying to go through 
Um, but yeah, you can have a self-employed person covering nine to five and they might be happy to do that. But the minute they decide they don't want to, they don't have to. So that's the true, the true part of it, isn't it? It's, and if you're a self-employed person, the true test of it is whether you can just down tools and walk out. Yeah. That is a true test, isn't it? Yeah. So what's, yeah, the, no risk, consequence. what's the risk to the business owner if we get this wrong? So, I mean, there are sort of tax implications, which you'd probably actually be better to talk to your accountant about. Um, don't go to him for your contract, but talk to him about tax implications. Um, yeah, so there are tax implications, but also you've probably, well, depending how long it's been going on for, you've not been giving them holiday pay um, and you've not been potentially giving them sick pay. So you're breaching all these statutory entitlements that they'd have as an employee. And it doesn't matter what your contract says, it's what's actually happening in reality. So um, they could take you to the tribunal and you could have to pay compensation and reimburse them for everything that they would have been entitled to. And it, it does happen quite frequently. Um, right. So you need to get it right, really, because someone could be doing this for years and then you have to sort of back pay all of that. And obviously the reputation or damage that you might get locally as well, it's just not worth it. Yeah. And this is something that you um, you help with and you? you write specific agreements between um, businesses and, and people that rent tables at their premises and stuff. Yeah, it's still important to have a contract with these people. Obviously, they're not employed, so they don't need an employment contract. But it's worth stating sort of what's expected and what sort of putting in there that there's no obligation to work. And that if you get that contract written up and you are actually sticking to everything that's written in there, then you can be confident that you are treating that person as self-employed. Um, yeah. Whereas if you refer back to your contract and you think, oh, I'm not doing that, he has to be here every day then you might want to reevaluate whether that person is self-employed or not. That's it. It's all about, you know, I'm not here to put people off doing it. It's all about protecting yourself. Uh, it's about protecting you, you and your business if you're the business owner. And this is about protecting the people if they're working somewhere on a self-employed basis and making sure that their rights are protected as well, isn't it? Yeah, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And certain people will have a preference each way and it will work better for having self-employed people for some businesses than it will for others. It's just making sure that you're actually doing it properly. And knowledge is power, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Cool. So I think hopefully we've, we've signed that off. Um, talk to us about the, just the, the zero hour contracts. Is that still a thing? You know, the... There's been a lot about it in the media. Can we still issue zero-hour contracts? Is it um, frowned upon or, or, or normal? Yeah, it's definitely frowned upon. And I think probably Mark Ashley is a bit to blame for that. But, um, yeah, I, I don't personally think that they're the best way to go because it does just open you up a little bit for risk. Um, it's a bit unethical, in my opinion. But that being said, on a casual worker contract, um they are classed as a worker so what that means is they will still get sort of holiday pay and um they won't get sick pay but they'll get holiday pay so if they work say three days a week for 12 weeks then you will calculate their holiday pay based on what they'd accrued on the days that they'd worked if that makes sense mm -hmm. so they wouldn't have an annual entitlement they'd just get a holiday based on what they'd worked so 
I don't know, a casual worker contract can work in some cases, but I think a lot of the time people use them when it should be an employment contract. Yeah. And so, but they, they accrue holiday whilst, whilst working with you. Yeah. And then if they do, if they consistently do a set number of hours a week on a set number of days, does that then sort of become an employment contract or is that... Not officially, but if somebody, and I mean, there's no sort of legal time frame on this, but I'd say if somebody is doing a certain amount of hours, I tend to use as a, as a marker, I would seriously review what their employment status is. And it may be that that person doesn't even want to be an employee. We always kind of assume that somebody wants to be an employee, but actually people don't. Um, so it's all about then speaking to that employee, not employee, speaking to that worker and saying, look, this is happening. You're working these hours. Do you want to be employed and document in that conversation? Um, but then there is still the obligation on the employer to determine the status. So you can speak to them and see if they want to be employed. But if they don't want to be employed, you might have a bit of an issue in that they're actually sort of representing an employment relationship. Um, but it, it's a tricky one. It's sort of dependent on the situation and on individual circumstances. It's hard to generally say, hmm. um, but as a rule, if somebody's consistently doing the same amount of hours each week and the same hours in the day sort of thing, then you might want to review whether they are self-employed or a worker. So get advice. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> basically get advice. Um, one other thing I just wanted to, your signal's gone a bit poor, but um, one thing I wanted to catch up on was um, the number of hours that people work. Now, you know, dog groomers are really, really busy and can put in big numbers of hours per week, I should think. There's probably enough work for them to do that. Um, what do we need to be careful of as, as employers and business owners when it comes to the number of hours worked? So there's something called the Working Time Directive, which basically what's the sort of like maximum hours that UK workers can work. Um, and interestingly, I quite like the history behind this directive because it came from the EU and the UK really did not want to enforce it, but they ended up basically sort of having to agree to it. Um, so there is a 48 hour limit on the working week. However, when I said the UK didn't want to agree to it, what they ended up being able to negotiate was that people can opt out of it. So sort of like a statutory right that you can't work over 48 hours. However, if you opt out of it, you can. So there are ways around it. Um, if you are going to get an employee to opt out, then you need it in writing, you need it signed saying that they want to opt, to opt out a lot of people put like an opt-out sheet in the employment contract it's like you can't do that because they might think they have to sign it to sort of be able to go ahead with the contract um it has to come from the employee basically right. um however you've got to think about whether you want someone sort of overworked in your business handling dogs handling sort of hot water and things like that as we've spoken about those risks before it can actually be quite a risk if your employees are overworked and tired so you still want to be making sure even if they've opted out that they're working sensible hours and getting sufficient rest cool okay uh we'll, we'll see if your 
Zoom connection stays with us. If not, um, you might have to answer the questions in the group, but let's have a look through some of the comments and questions. And there's quite a few. Um, right. People saying hello. People saying apprentices are amazing. Yep, definitely. Apprenticeships are brilliant. Um, <clears throat> we don't pay them for bank holidays, but they have the holiday allowance for 28 days and can choose to take it or have it unpaid. It doesn't... The bank holiday. If they choose to have it unpaid, that's fine. Okay. As long as you are offering them the work. So if the salon's open and they can come in, they can choose to have it unpaid. I'm not really sure why they would, but again, get it in writing and get them to sign to say that they want it unpaid. Mm -hmm. um, Susie uh, offers um, flexibility around six weeks holiday a year as we don't open Mondays. However, I offer unpaid holidays extra. Is that okay? Sorry, could you repeat that one? So Susie offers flexibility around holidays. Um, I offer six weeks holidays a year as we don't open on Mondays. However, I offer unpaid holiday as extra. It's just unpaid leave, isn't it? Yeah, that's fine. Again, just sort of get the employee to sign to say that they want the unpaid leave. Yeah. It's just like offering extra days, but saying that if you need to take them, they're going to be unpaid, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Um, what is the legal amount of holiday we have to offer as new to having employees? So dependent on how many days they work, it's 5.6 weeks, which is 28 days in a year. Um, that's if, well, the 5.6 weeks will be pro-rated down. So if someone only works three days, it'll still be 5.6 weeks of three days, if that makes sense. But it's the 28 days that would be pro-rated down. <laughs> it's really hard to explain and need a calculator yeah. to do the maths. But you know, I, I try and use all the... Um all the calculators online but you know the easiest thing is just to go grab a call with someone like yourself <laughs> and uh, yeah or to be you. fair the government website has got a calculator which is pretty accurate so i'll always like reach out my calculations on the government calculator so that one's pretty good too um can your accountant do yeah we've done that <laughs> um we've done how can you add a handbook into your business Oh, this is a good one. Um, dealing with staff with mental health issues has been difficult to the point I've been worried to being um, been worried about bringing certain things up in the fear that making making things worse worse with the employee. Yeah, I was speaking to a client about this today. It is it can be a bit of a sticky sort of topic to bring up. Um, so, I mean, it would help to maybe have an example of what sort of what sort of things they're scared to say but I'd say just as long as you're not treating the person unfavorably because they've got a mental health condition sorry are you still there yeah still there go on uh, yeah as long as you're not treating the person unfavorably because of that mental health condition and you're not sort of being discriminative to them just sort of offer support and talk to them and treat them as though they're just the rest of the employees you know just don't treat them any different but at the same time offer them that additional support if they do need it yeah um going back to sort of what's acceptable and what's not um jonah was saying what about staff who are going out 
probably clubbing, going to the pub, coming back in at four or five a.m. and then coming into the the workplace and wielding sharp scissors. You know, these these scissors aren't are sharp, and they'll cut a dog and and stuff like that with little sleep. I mean, that's poor performance, really, isn't it? Yeah, and also in the handbook, it's worth having sort of like an alcohol and substance abuse policy in there. So if you had cause to think that they were still under the influence of alcohol, then it could be sort of linked to a disciplinary. If it's just sort of they're tired, then yeah, probably more a performance thing. Um, but with that, you kind of have to wait until they underperform to bring anything up. Mm. So- if you know what I mean, but I suppose it, you wouldn't need to bring it up until they did underperform. But you could you could have a quiet word with them and say, look, I know you went out last night. Um, you had work this morning and these are the risks. We need you to be on top form. You know, you've got holidays to take. If it was a special occasion and you needed it, then come and speak to me. We can maybe book it off, things like that. And just just make them know that it's not acceptable. Yeah. OK. Zoom's going to give up on us, I think, in a minute. So we'll probably wrap it up but um that's right one big question that a lot of people are asking are obviously what services do you provide um what services do you offer so i essentially can support you with any employment relations matters any employee issues that you have so i have the sort of subscription retainers which bill you're on and some others in the group as well um so that's sort of ongoing support if you have any questions need anything doing in terms of your employees then sort of always at the other end of the phone and can sort of support you with that as and when you need it um I then do sort of ad hoc work as well so for example if you're just employing somebody and you need a contract then you could just sort of come to me and get a one-off contract um same with sort of handbooks and stuff as well um, otherwise you can if you need support with say a process a disciplinary process or a redundancy process um, you can sort of come to me and um, we can arrange like blocks of hours so we can use those hours throughout that process as and when they're needed and books them in between us but to be honest I'm pretty flexible at sort of working around what people need um, so I know there are sort of different types of support that people need so if you sort of need any support it's worth just getting in touch and we can see how we can work around what you need and what I offer yeah definitely and like you said we we have you on a uh, retainer so you're uh, at the end of the phone you're in our zoom meetings with our staff you are mm-hmm. there to help us with all the all the different uh, queries that we get we're business owners pet groomers you know we're not HR professionals so mm-hmm. we as you said we've outsourced our HR, and we've outsourced our accountancy to people that know exactly what they're doing. So, you know, it's worth getting in contact. <clears throat> and if you do have staff, making sure everything's done properly and with the support from yeah. someone like yourself. Yes, definitely. So, yeah, if anybody has got any sort of other questions that my connection is not enabling me to answer, then just drop it on the comments or drop me a message and I'll get back to you. Yeah, I've tagged you in the uh, in the live so you can go and see and, and read back all the other people's comments. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. you can leave your contact details in there for everyone. So uh, yeah. get in touch with you if they need to. Yeah, I will do. All right, take care. You too. It's been nice speaking to you. <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye. Speak soon. Bye.